0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to
1: another episode of Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at a new film in theaters and matches it up with some familiar favorites and lesser-known classics from days gone by. My name is Stephen
2: Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're going to take a look at the new horror film Hereditary and talk about some other films
1: from the past that uh, are favorites of ours that really get under our skin and really creep us out. So uh, maybe, maybe don't listen to this episode with the lights out.
0: The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian the polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast Network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron
2: Wilson. So, Stephen, I have to be up front with you and with all our listeners. I am not much of a horror guy. I've never really been a horror guy. There's, a, there's plenty from the genre, from all and it's all its sub-genres, that I haven't seen. And I know myself well enough to know that I don't have a lot of appetite for slasher films or picture that pictures that rely on jump scares, all those franchises of the 80s, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. They don't do a lot for me. Um, but my favorite horrors if I have favorite, and I, I definitely do, are from the 70s. The Wicker Man, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Alien, The Shining, or, well, The Thing. Well, that's early 80s. Uh, and I got a lot of time for The Exorcist. And I think people that forget that Close Encounters of the Third Kind starts as a horror. It becomes something different later. Mm-hmm. But when it starts out, it is as creepy as any of these movies. Um, now we're here in what I think a lot of people are talk calling a, a a really good time for independent horror films. If you consider some of the recent great examples like The Baba Duke, The Witch, uh, It Follows, I really liked It Follows. Yeah. Um, you know, and a couple of other ones, It Comes at Night from last year and A Quiet Place from earlier this year, they had moments. Uh, and I think Hereditary is probably good enough to join this sort of category of like remarkable interesting horror films that are based certainly inspired by the the films of maybe the 70s what what do you think i i really
1: enjoyed hereditary uh and uh it did certainly harken back to things like the wicker man and and uh, a film that we'll be talking about later on the show uh, don't look now with its um you know with its fear of uh of children and and uh, and strange uh, beliefs beyond our normal uh, understanding and there's a lot of that kind of thing wrapped up in there uh, and uh, you know it, it touched a lot of those kind of nerve points for me uh, which is, is probably why it was so effective but but yeah I I, I also uh, grew up in the 70s and uh, have a lot of early horror memories from perhaps maybe even too early for my age and. Uh, I think of things like well, you mentioned Spielberg. Certainly, there was Duel, which was his right. first, his first kind of major project, which was a TV movie that actually became a theatrical release overseas, and is kind of this existential horror movie about a guy being chased by a, a truck. He can't, you know, he can't see the the driver, and this thing is pursuing him down the highway. Dennis Weaver uh, can't get away from this monstrous smoke belching
2: truck. and uh, You know, yeah. I remember the car, which felt like a, a lower rent yes. version of Duel. <laughs> <laughs> James Brolin instead yes, of Dennis Weaver. That's right. Yeah. And that one, actually, I saw on TV when I was way too young, and that was really scary. I've seen it since it doesn't quite uh, deliver the same thrills.
1: Yeah. It's but. not made with quite the same level of... Um, of skill as, as Duel is. I, I have a copy of The Car. I enjoy it. I watch it every couple of years. It's yeah. it's fun. Brolin is, you know, s- 70s action Brolin is kind of underrated. He's, he's this, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. You know, uh, before he got kind of locked into TV and stuff, I remember him from stuff like The Car. There's a great action film called High Risk, which is a weird satire of a bunch of, Weekend warriors who think they can be mercenaries and and rob a fortune from a uh, a Central American drug lord played by James Coburn. It's a pretty obscure Whoa. film. yeah, I haven't even I haven't heard of that at some point, Lindsay Wagner joins in in the fun. I, I have to see it now. it's it's yeah, it's it's hilarious <laughs> uh-huh. and 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 great because he's it it it's it's a really early example of a film uh, playing against a lot of action movie cliches. like, you know, like the, the guy hits somebody in the head thinking he's just going to go unconscious, but instead he just stands there and goes, ow, ow, <laughs> you know, and he clubs him in the head with his rifle. Uh-huh. It's like people don't automatically go down like a sack of potatoes when you hit him in the back of the head, that kind of thing. So right. it's very clever and, and uh, completely underrated and overlooked. Um, but, uh, but, but Duel was certainly this kind of existential horror film uh, that I kind of – that's one of the genres that Spielberg really hasn't returned to, um, You know, although he's used parts of that in, in other films. Uh, Jaws and, was a bit existential. Jaws, and but but you know, and maybe in things like Temple of Doom, perhaps. Right. But, but uh, I'd like to see him Return to like a full out kind of action horror film. Maybe not something supernatural, because it, neither Duel nor Jaws relies on right. on that, uh, which Hereditary certainly does. And I'll, I'll swing it back to that. But but uh, but but things like, like Kolchak: The Night Stalker, which I guess is getting a new Blu-ray release of the the, the original pilot or the, the first two TV movies. That came out before the series, created by Dan Curtis, who of course created uh, Dark Shadows and oh. a lot of a lot of great horror TV movies I- in the '70s. Um, kind of a master of small screen horror, um, you know. That's getting kind of a, a revival on Blu-ray, and uh, that was a big influence on me as a kid. I saw it, you know, staying up way past my bedtime to to catch these shows, which gave me horrible nightmares. <laughs> um, uh, Kill Dozer, which was a TV movie about. Uh, a bulldozer that somehow acquires sentience <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm r- runs amok. A, I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Also, the <laughs> trilogy of terror with Karen Black, uh, which was a three story. Again, that was I think it was a Dan Curtis production um, where uh, Karen Black stars as three different characters in three different. It's an anthology film, three different stories, but it's the final one where she must combat a a Zuni fetish doll, which has come to life and chases her around with a large. Carving knife, uh, chases her around the apartment. Uh, that, you know, I saw that as a kid on Midday Matinee of all things, <laughs> on, on on CTV. Uh-huh. And of it was like a snow day, and every kid in school saw it. And the next day, is was all anybody could talk about. And uh, I, to this day, that still gives me the willies. Like you know, I just had this vision of this little doll screaming and chasing her <laughs> around right. with a knife. Right. Um, so I highly recommend any if you can see Kolchak or or Trilogy of Terror or. Or Killdozer, which I think is on YouTube. Um, you know, I, I definitely recommend tracking these down. Um, and of course, uh, you know, they probably look a
2: little silly today. I think to yeah. some people, well, but many of them probably do. I have my own list, which I'll get to in a little bit uh, of the stuff that scared me, and I watched way too young. Um, but yeah, they're like yours. Uh, uh, some of them haven't aged as well.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I guess maybe because we become more sophisticated in terms of special effects and so on, like the Zuni Fetish Doll in trilogy of terror, it really is a, a, a goofy looking little puppet, but just the just the way you know just the editing of it and Karen Black's really great performance as she becomes more and more unhinged by this thing, uh is really what sells it. And uh so so you know, those those basic storytelling elements are, are certainly uh not to be uh not to be underrated for sure. Uh Hereditary, of course, relies on a whole bunch of, of tricks, uh, and uh, early on, it doesn't it doesn't really resort to special effects or so on. Like it, it creates this sense of dread fairly early on um, when we're faced with the death of um, uh, Tony Collette's mom. Uh, her character, uh, I have it here, doesn't say Annie. Uh, the, the, this family has has sort of been dealing with the, the, the mother's uh, kind of descent in, into dementia and. And her kind of strange, captivating hold on certain members of the family right. and the, so on. The, the grandmother, you mean? The grandmother, yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, Tony Collette is the mom. Tony Collette's mother
2: and the grandmother. Yeah. And uh, there's also Gabriel Byrne playing the husband, Steve. And uh, then two, two teenagers, Charlie, played by Millie Shapiro, and Peter, Alex Wolf. And they live on this lovely sort of wood-paneled home somewhere. I think it was shot in Utah. Yes. Uh, And, you know, lots of trees, mountains in the distance. Uh, You get the sense of the dry air and the clear, cold nights. And, uh, yeah, it's quite lovely. And this family, you know, we meet them, and they're in the middle of grieving, uh, and dealing it with in it with 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 it in their own way. Uh, Annie, uh, the Tony Colette character, she is an artist. She creates these miniature homes and dioramas of things that have happened to her in her life, and they're incredible, incredible detail. Um, and the husband Steve, he's kind of, uh, you know, I mean, Byrne is very good at downplaying, and he definitely does that here in comparison to Colette, who goes big. Byrne goes small, and sometimes it's almost like he disappears. Uh, But Colette is so good when she gets emotional. I I think uh, it's not often that a horror film is is rewarded. A performance in a horror film is rewarded come awards time, but I really hope – that people will remember this because I think Colette is amazing in this. Uh, and then the casting of the teenager is really interesting because Millie Shapiro has a really interesting look. She's very internal and she's she's very singular and she she's the first one to notice strange things happening after her grandmother's death. Whereas the, the boy, he's a little older. Uh, Peter is mostly just a pothead and ignored by his parents. His father gives him some uh, approbation a little bit, but for the most part, he's he's also they're they're like all siloed. These characters they're not really talking to each other until one night at dinner. Uh, mom just explodes on her <laughs> yes. teenage son in a way, like just projects a lot of guilt on him and it's just it's just awful. I mean, this, this is, uh, you take away the supernatural elements and this film is very much about uh, grief and mental illness in a way that feels really potent and I found that maybe the strongest part of the film. I mean, I enjoyed all the elements. There's so much detail gone into this, the sets and what's going on with the mysterious uh, uh, apparitions and the supernatural elements but but at its heart, it's it's you know it's about these people basically all falling apart uh, together, uh, and and yeah, that's that's some pretty potent stuff.
1: Yeah, it's like the, the, the family dynamic was kind of crumbling to begin with before the events of the film are even set in motion. That the husband and wife are kind of disconnected from each other. Gabriel Byrne just kind of comes home from work and eats his dinner, reads his book, and goes to bed, and that's that's kind of the routine, and and and. Uh, and and Tony Collette's character Annie is is kind of locked away with her uh with her miniatures and her you know her goggles <laughs> her mm-hmm. magnifying goggles trying to create her own world and not paying enough attention to the the real world around her um and uh it, yeah it's, it's it's almost like a, it's like a a horror movie is intruded onto an Ingmar Bergman film <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> about, about a about a, a crumbling family coming apart at the seams um you know, and then there's the the specter of the grandmother who who um, you know you kind of feel her influence even though even though she's gone at the start of the film. Uh, you f- you feel that influence and that creeping in at the edges of what kind of hold did she have on on the daughter, for example, and 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 what did she fill her head with, uh, you know, when no one else was around. And and uh, and I I like the way that it it kind of makes this unseen character very present in the film and of course that becomes more important as it goes along um and as you mentioned details it there's there's things just things in the corner of a frame or things that just go by in the blink of an eye that will pay back later on in the film so if you do see it make sure that you're paying very close attention uh you know if you, if you end up watching it at home you know put the phone down <laughs>
2: you're, you're, gonna, you're
1: gonna you're gonna miss stuff uh there, there are things that go by um you know, within the space of a few frames, uh, and I, you know, it's it's hard to say too much about the film without giving anything away. But obviously, um, uh, the the grandmother, even though she had dementia at the end uh, of her life, had clearly made plans for what was going to happen after her passing, and uh, and so we see those kind of unfold over the course of the film, and we don't even really know at first what's happening really. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of the genius of the film, but, uh, there has been some criticism of it, which I can understand, but I, I don't mind it so much that the, the final third of the film kind of goes into, uh, you know, it kind of the story kind of goes into this high gear with, with some, uh, extra special effects and things. And, and, uh, I've read a couple of people saying that they don't feel that it's really earned by what's happened up to that point, or that it goes a little too over the top. Um, you know, maybe it was a little influenced by the witch. Um, there, there feels yeah. like there's a connection to that, perhaps that maybe is a little too obvious. But uh, but for the most part, I, I certainly uh, enjoyed getting to that point and having, you know, having, having my buttons pushed <laughs>
2: along the way. <laughs> I definitely enjoyed the journey, but I I'm kind of uh, most of my. Uh, opinion, my feelings uh, are on the side of those folks who feel like maybe not in the last act, but certainly in the last 10 minutes that they cross over into a level of they're asking for a level of commitment from the audience to believe in the supernatural elements uh, that they have set up. Uh, that I think is, I think it goes beyond, I think to the point where it's, it's almost laughable. I mean, I wasn't laughing and neither was anybody else in the <laughs> audience I saw the film with, but at the same time, I'm like, I was kind of scratching my head going, really, really? That's, that's okay. All right. So that's what's, that's what's happening now. All right. Sh- sure. I mean, if we can accept that thing that happened earlier, then I guess we can accept that thing that's happening now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, and I, I, don't, I won't say, I'm not going to say any more than that. Uh, and I don't think it ruins the film by any stretch i think there's a lot of great suspense here and i did come away as advertised feeling creeped out and uh yeah uh certainly the i I felt like i just yeah i'd been through something in a way that a lot of a lot of horror films leave me cold uh this did not do that but i did feel that uh what it was asking of me in that those final moments was was more than i was was further than i was willing to go and uh yeah
1: yeah, I think in my case, I was invested enough in, in Toni Collette's performance that uh, that I gave it a wider margin, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, she really does uh, pull out all the stops, as it were, uh, through the course of this film. And uh, it's it, it really would take an act, actor of that caliber to, to kind of navigate all the twists and turns that her character has to go through from the uh, from start to finish of this film. Uh, and uh, And so if you're a fan of hers, certainly... By all means, go see it, and uh, I, I I do find that it is it is cr- creepy and did get under my skin in a way that uh, I did not expect. It 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 does manage to avoid cliches for the most part, uh, although it does, as we said earlier, have some signposts back to earlier films like like The Wicker Man, like Don't Look Now, that um, that maybe are a little too telegraphed. But I I do have to say for. A debut feature from uh, writer-director uh, Ari Astor, uh, I have to say, is pretty darn impressive in terms of of, of the look, of the, of the editing, uh, you know, which, which is used in a, in a very uh, propelling and kind of off-putting edge of your seat kind of way. I mean, I, I think I think on the technical level, it's 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 a very confident film. I'll be really curious to see what he comes up with next. <laughs> In talking of Hereditary, we also uh, mentioned that it, it harkened back to some films from the 70s. Uh, Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, uh, I thought of some stuff like Burnt Offerings. Uh, there's a, um, there's a, there was a film called The Other about a creepy set of, uh, of twins, I think, um, with some sort of strange... Psychokinetic Link, um, that was directed by Robert Mulligan, who made To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, OK, that's interesting. It's a very unusual film. It's, it's, it's worth seeing. It's very 70s. Uh, the main child performer in the film is either really creepy or really annoying, depending on your point of view. But some people really love that film. Uh, I haven't seen it in a while, but I do remember it kind of having some cool, creepy moments, if you like those kind of creepy kid films along the lines of Village of the Damned and that sure. sort, of, sort of thing. Um, yeah and it just it just seemed to be uh, that decade in particular seemed to be prime time for filmmakers and storytellers you know that trying new things with the the uh, the freedoms that they were allowed by the uh, removal of the production code which uh, fell by the wayside in the late 60s um, and you know so right off the bat you get films like like Midnight Cowboy and and uh,
2: no, uh and, what's uh um, Rose, rosemary 's baby yeah I think. rosemary's yeah. baby
1: clockwork yeah. orange kind of testing the limits of what you could actually do in a in a major motion picture, but I think sort of the horror genre and so on um you know i think I think it took them a little bit longer maybe to to become more sophisticated rosemary 's baby is obviously an early early um, entry into uh, into that new level of sophisticated adult horror that wasn 't about sort Of hammer horror vampires and werewolves and so on, and um, and uh, it, it also there was, there was a change in style, uh, and uh, the films were um, you know, more modern. You know, I mean, it's funny because you look at the horror films of the 60s, a lot of them are set in the past, sometimes the distant past, with the horror films of, and the hammer horror films are kind of Victorian era mm-hmm. for the most part, um, and uh that was kind of, you know, hearkening back to the universal horror films, which seemed to come from another, you know, another time before that. And, and this is, this is maybe a great decade for, for horror films, uh, set in the here and now night of the living dead is another one that comes to mind, you know, very modern day and very, uh, very prescient in a lot of ways. And, and, and also with, uh, an undercurrent of meaning that hadn't really been present in a lot of, uh, horror features. So, um, we have, we have a bunch of those kind of films to talk about. And, uh, I don't know where you want to start. We, we
2: mentioned Don't Look Now. I just watched yeah. it earlier this afternoon. I definitely and, would like to talk about that. I just want to give a nod to the the, sh- the films I watched when I was a kid oh, that sure. I probably shouldn't have because they were <laughs> – they were. we mentioned the car earlier. Um, the Poseidon Adventure was one that, that I saw way too young. It's just a disaster movie. I mean, really, it's, it's not even amongst these great horror movies that we're talking about. But because I'd seen it so young, uh, you know, the – the, the ship turns upside down the fire, the water, the claustrophobia this ensemble cast with people dying off I just, I found that all pretty terrifying uh, and I watched it not too long ago and I found it still, it's pretty campy but it actually does have the power to scare that that film um, so there, there was one, also a number of films in the 70s uh, that still people do remember like The Omen, Richard Donner's film about whether or not an American diplomat is raising the Antichrist which had a great <laughs> chilling build up and um and david warner and i remember gregory peck and lee remick uh but it had that that image the the warner plays the photographer who who sees things in his photographs of people he can predict people's deaths because he sees like lines through necks when people get uh, decapitated. And uh, of course, inevitably, eventually bad things start to happen to him. But uh, I remember looking at photographs of myself after that for like a year, (laughs) looking to make sure that there was nothing there, you know, predicting my death or anybody else's death. Um, So there was that, uh, the Fury from 1978, the Brian De Palma's film. Uh, is uh, is about uh, telekinetics and uh, sort of, you know, a little bit like Scanners in that way, um, if anyone remembers that particular film. Uh, the Eyes of Laura Mars, the Irvin Kirshner picture with Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones, written by John Carpenter, of course, who would go on to do great work. Um, and The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. Now, this is a film also a very slow burn kind of uh, chilly... Uh, set in Quebec, supposedly. I think partly shot in Quebec, yes, but also yes, shot in
1: Maine. Canadian pedigree, I think.
2: Yeah. Um, it's a, it's about a, a girl's 13, played by teenage Jodie Foster, very much playing to her age, who lives in a large house with her father, who's a writer, but no one gets to see the father. Everyone's mm. sort of wondering where he is. A few folks do drop by, though, all looking for the father, uh, but they 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 struggle to... She, she basically covers for him his absence, and we start to wonder, well, where actually is he and should we be afraid of this little girl <laughs> see that's where the tension of the film comes because we're not sure whether we sort of want to be on her side because she's so capable and cool but we're also not really sure if she might be the, a psychopath who's killed her father and uh, you know the, there's a nosy landlady and then her adult son played by a never more sleazy Martin Sheen uh, shows up um, but it's uh, it's it's actually a, I watched it again fairly recently and it is uh, as creepy as I remembered it it still has a potent quality to it, even though it's not very well known. I think it's one, certainly one of uh, Foster's better uh, earlier roles. Uh, you know, I, I think it came right around the time of Taxi Driver uh, and is, I think, worth seeking out. Um, but uh, yeah. And let's though, not forget Candle Shoe. Candle the, Shoe. <laughs> did you ever see that? No, I never did.
1: Yeah, Disney, I, I saw this in the theater when it came out. It might have been my first real exposure to Jodie Foster because I was certainly too old, too young to see a Taxi Driver. Uh-huh. And she plays uh, like a street, a tough Streetwise orphan from the states, who finds out that uh, she's possibly the heir to a British fortune, and and gets whisked away to oh, wow to London and, and and hangs out with with David Niven the butler and, and oh. <laughs> on this estate and has to get used to British uh, ways. And meanwhile, there's some thugs trying to you know ensure that she doesn't get the fortune. And uh, it's it's very much a Disney film, but it's 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 right around the time of Taxi Driver. Oh, and it's just very weird that at the same time she was doing Taxi Driver, she's also in this. Very uh, neat and tidy Disney family comedy. Wow. (laughs) And Little Girl lives down the lane. Uh, And uh, so I became a fan at a very young age because she's really cool. Yeah. She's like, you know, she's as tough as a boy and all this kind of <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah,
2: sure. Yeah, she she was amazing and, and uh, is still amazing, to be honest. She has a career sure. almost like unparalleled in terms of success and and doing really interesting work.
1: Well, um, Hotel Artemis opened this weekend. That's right, so, which, which I haven't I was, seen Neither yet, have I. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm looking forward to it. She's a big draw, and I would go see that just because of her, even if it wasn't kind of in my wheelhouse, a, a bizarre genre picture. looks like a really interesting B-movie, but we'll see. Uh, but... Speaking of 70s horror, the Guardian newspaper published its picks of the scariest movies ever, this past week, which oh, I thought, okay. oh, this is handy, uh, you know, just to see what they chose. And their number one was Don't Look Now, which huh. I think is indicative not only of the fact it was a British film and, and certainly very important at the time and very smart, Nicholas Rogue directed, uh, but it also is deeply uh, it, it inspired Hereditary in a big way. I mean, you were mentioning that off air, how much you thought that, that uh, Hereditary had been considering Don't Look Now. I mean, at its core, Don't Look Now is a story about a couple dealing with the death of a child. And uh, there is an overlay of supernatural stuff going on, but it doesn't play its hand too much. I mean, it it all could be just paranoia and delusions of people who are in grief. And, you know, your, your mind will play tricks on you if you're grieving. And certainly I think that's kind of the suggestion that Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland Playing this couple who, after at the, the beginning, their daughter dies, drowns, and then they go to Venice, and uh, and he his job there is to try to restore an old church, uh, and and things weird things start to happen there, including Julie Christie meeting this these these two sisters, one of whom is blind, and she is a, a psychic, and she has messages for her from her her deceased daughter. And uh, yeah, and that's sort of what starts to happen. And, you know, uh, structurally, plot wise, there's a lot like this sort of in Hereditary as well. Yeah, it makes me wonder if I'd ever want to go to Venice. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Venice, and it's actually no, nowhere near as spooky as that. I mean, it's it's easy to get lost in Venice. That's one thing I noticed. Lots of people, there's scenes of people running through the pathways. It is very easy to get lost, but it is a, a delightful place. I mean, you know, when the water hasn't risen above your uh, ankles, because <laughs> that happens too.
1: Well, I, I was watching it with my girlfriend Jordana, and and she had memories of getting lost in Venice in the early '90s. So she was, you know, she was very, you know, very wrapped watching this film, trying to see if she noted any locations. But right, it sure. seems like they 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 filmed in the less tourist friendly parts of Venice when uh-huh. they when they filmed this because it's a kind of a, uh, you know, you see some bridges and some canals and boats and things. But it's not, you know, considering what a beautiful city it can be. Uh, it, here it's more sort of dark and foreboding yes, and gray yes. very gray um, and uh and and of course with this this past that just kind of hangs over it like a like a shroud and and uh you know Don Sutherland and and, and uh, Julie Christie have a you know they have a very realistic relationship i think that's one of the big things about this film is that their their marriage is very believable they you know the, the, they share the grief they don't there isn't a lot of bickering between them which is you know sometimes i watch movies and couples bicker in a way or fight in a way that just doesn't seem you know realistic it's just fake drama but here sure. they're kind of unite they're actually united by their by their grief over the loss of their daughter and then of course something happens to their son at some point in the course of the film and and, and julie has to fl- you know fly back to england and and things start to go downhill from from there but uh, it, yeah again it's that sense of unease i mean rogue was a cinematographer but um you know, also had a pretty good feel for editing as well, uh, and and using it in a way to kind of keep you off guard, and uh, and like Hereditary or, or you know or Hereditary, like Don't Look Now, uh, isn't, there are things happening in the corner of the screen that again, blinker, you'll miss at moments. You know, like a little flash of of a color uh, just for a second, and. and off to the left of the screen, and so on. You really have to keep your 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 mind sort of focused on this film to really take in all the details and and kind of piece things together. And you know, it's the kind of film I think I've seen it five times now, and I still see new stuff every time I mm-hmm. watch it. And you know, and that's probably true of a lot of Rogues' films. Uh, you know, think of things like uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth and Performance, and you know, they're multi-layered films or things. You know, he plays with the timeline and and. Uh, and uh, you know your perception of things and, and still manages to keep things pretty clear like you don't come out of Dolan now wondering what happened. you just wonder you know when you figured out what was happening and yeah and uh, and and again, like you might have to, you have to go back a couple of times to really get the full grasp, but it but it is it is an amazing film. Uh, in terms of the performances and the and the look, I mean, like I say, he was a cinematographer, and all of his films look look incredible. Walkabout is another oh, example yeah, sure. of a, of a really superior, you know, acted and shot film. Mm-hmm. There, you know, with a with a young cast for the most
2: part. And Insignificance is another one I like a lot. From yeah. The 80s, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, there, there's some so his he, his films go get pretty rangy later in his career. <laughs> yeah, and you kind of have to you know walk that. Uh, Minefield a little more carefully, but there is still some great stuff among it. But uh, and I kind of wish he'd maybe return to a, 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 a kind of a genre film in this way. But I guess he's just not the kind of guy to repeat himself. And no. you know, Man Who Fell to Earth was his science fiction film, and this was his his you know gothic horror film. And uh, you know, and then he had other other fish to fry later on in the career. But but uh, Dolan now certainly. Probably the, the
2: high water mark yeah. of his films. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, it was actually sort of, it's a distracting little bit of trivia, but for a long time, it was suggested that there's a sex scene in Don't Look Now, and it was suggested that Sutherland and Christie weren't kidding. They weren't uh, that this was actually going on, and they somehow filmed it. But I think it's because there is an emotional intimacy that people weren't expecting from films, and I think that's what really took people by surprise. And I think the actors have debunked that theory that that's what was actually happening, and I think the filmmaker as well. But but you know these things do tend to get a life of their own. Um, But uh, but don't let that distract you from what is a superior horror film and really deserves to be seen for how it's not actually it's as much a drama as it is a horror. Um, But. Uh, we we didn't watch a lot of stuff, or we didn't. Sometimes we do a lot of research for the podcast, and wound up seeing a lot of things that we hadn't seen before. But one of the films that you suggested we watch was also from the '70s, and it was called "Who Would Kill a Child?" from 1976, <laughs> uh, which is a really peculiar film. And I can't say for sure I, I really liked it, but uh, I, I can appreciate why you suggested it in terms of you know really creepy creepy movies that would would have scared me uh you know as a kid (laughs) or even now uh it starts with a bunch of stock footage from global atrocities of the 20 20th century and then goes on to tell the story of this couple traveling in spain who find their way to a remote island in the mediterranean uh from the looks of it the sets and uh, locations are all from like Eastwood spaghetti westerns. It very much has that look, um, but there are, the place is inhabited mostly and almost completely by children who have done terrible, terrible things. It's like a like a a group of very smiley, uh, friendly looking kids with you know clothes that look like they've been freshly you know cleaned and everything. <laughs> they look very wholesome, but they are not. And uh, yeah, that's a really interesting tack. To take, uh, and again, this is actually good to connect with *Hereditary* because the youngest child in *Hereditary* is is a little spooky at first. We're not really sure what she's about, and uh, certainly that's the case with all the children in this film.
1: Yeah, she is a little bit menacing in, in *Hereditary*, and, and you know, I think of the scene where she gets a hold of a dead bird. as it's, yeah. it's something that that's going to linger for a while. And then I didn't realize that in in one of the posters, she's actually holding the bird <laughs> in the poster, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which I, I didn't, I'd seen the poster a few times and it wasn't until seeing it like after the movie going, Oh, Oh wow. Why didn't I notice that before? But I guess it was a detail that I didn't realize the significance of it. And, uh, and yeah, this is uh this is a film that it is out on DVD. I don't know where else you would find a copy, but, um, it was recommended to me by Jason Eisner when I was, I was asking him about like favorite kind of horror or, or kind of against the grain kind of films that, that, most people wouldn't have heard of. And he, this was like the number one thing that he recommended and uh, immediately like tracked down a copy. And, uh-huh. Um, I don't know. It came, it came out in North America from some fly-by-night uh, um, distributor, I guess, but it, it came out in 1976. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that this, this film probably put a lot of people off because it is, it seems pretty extreme even for, you know, even now it seems extreme for now, let alone for, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and this couple uh, we got we got Lewis Lewis Fiander who's who's kind of like a Donald Sutherland light <laughs> he kind of looks a bit like i mean it's like an it's kind of annoying british uh version of sutherland and, and 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 his wife and they're stuck on this island and they have to you know they they keep running into adult survivors who you know have somehow managed to avoid uh, <laughs> getting mauled by these these gangs of children and and uh, it's it's interesting that and they do give a kind of an explanation as to why it's happening later late in the film uh and i you know i guess it, it's kind of a village of the damned sort of throwback with with a little bit of an extra twist um and, and certainly it's very similar to village of the damned in a lot of ways uh but with this full-on 70s horror i mean at one t- at one point you know the uh, our hero has to face a gang of children with a, with a machine gun, so. Uh, and and it, it goes there. I mean, it's yeah. kind of a, like, it seems like in, in the Western world, there's an unwritten rule that you can't kill a child in a movie, that it's, a, it's some sort of transgression. And this film just throws that rule book out the window. And it's, it's always interesting when that happens. I, I remember seeing an action film uh, in Hong Kong uh, or from hong kong i think it was called like run and kill or something like that where this this guy gets caught mixed up in some mob business and they kidnap his daughter and uh spoiler alert uh his daughter doesn't make it to the end of the film and it's done in such a horrifying and shocking way that, it's, oh i didn't think they would go there right and uh, you know and and in a north american film chances are they probably wouldn't um uh, and you know, hereditary plays around with that kind of transgression, uh, and uh, so you know that's that's worth keeping in mind. But uh, this film, yeah, it, I mean, obviously, it's it's called Who Could Kill a Child. You kind of know going in what the the basic storyline is, and and even so, it still seemed kind of horrifying <laughs> and yeah. terrifying in a, yeah. in a in a weird, off putting way. Just because you're seeing something that most films would just completely shy away from. or... You know, or they they sort of hold back and have some sort of last minute redemption where the kids are all suddenly not evil. <laughs>
2: and, yeah, not this it,
1: one. Not this one. Nope, evil to the end. Um, and the, which I you know I guess is kind of a giveaway, but I I do uh, you know if you want to see something you know way off the beaten path, I certainly recommend tracking this one down.
2: So, I you know have always been attracted by. Uh, movies that have uh have been sold to have a a special experience so i I haven't been just even though i i don't i'm self-described not a horror guy when i hear about some horror movie that really grabs people i am excited to see it i certainly was excited to see hereditary uh you know i i was excited to see you know, many David Cronenberg films. I'm excited to see a lot of films adapting Stephen King. Uh, you know, we mentioned The Shining earlier. A lot of the stuff from the 80s hasn't aged as well as The Shining, but it's still <laughs> What worth are you saying? Long- maximum Overdrive is not <laughs> the classic it once was? No, no. But, you know, you were talking <laughs> about machines that uh, have sentience and then start hunting well, that, you. Yeah, I mean, that is part the, of that parent, the, the that, that, that genre. Uh <laughs> but, uh, you know, for instance, I I really enjoyed, I don't know if enjoy is really the right word, but Dead Ringers. Uh, when we do our Cronenberg uh, ep- episode, we'll have to talk about that film. Um, and, uh, you know, Silence of the Lambs was one of those films that crossed over. It was as much a thriller as it was a horror movie, but, uh, you know, it won – whole multitudes of Academy Awards, because it was so good. Uh, And, you know, that's, that's great to see when that stuff happens. Uh, And then occasionally, I'll get drawn to seeing something that I don't expect to be good. And it, it chills me to the core, like, and that uh, is Event Horizon from 1997. This is a film that has definitely developed a a cult following since it was made, even though it bombed at the cinema in in ninety seven. It was directed by Paul W S Anderson. That's the uh, the Anderson, the uncool Anderson, <laughs> but who still wound up having a having a very successful career doing B movies and science fiction and action. Um, now this stars Sam Neill, Lawrence Fishburne, Kathleen Quinlan, and Jolie Richardson. And it's uh, basically the story is uh, from the way they sold it. It seemed sort of like a an alien pastiche, uh, yeah, the, alien meets Solaris, yeah, kind of thing. yeah, kind of thing. So there's a there's a ship that has been vanished and it's off the uh, the Event Horizon and it has been it's gone it's been gone for uh, for years and years and it shows up uh, in in orbit around um, uh, you know out in in the solar system. So they send uh, another ship to sort of investigate, find out what happened. And it turned out that it had this ship uh, Event Horizon had a had a special kind of drive that opened a portal. And something malevolent came through that portal. Uh, and when they arrive on the ship, they discover really what it is. I mean, it's, it is another haunted house in space. But there's something about this film. They do, it's done so well. The effects, the, um, the scares, the cast is really well chosen. Everything about it is, is just – I remember eating a full – box of popcorn while watching this <laughs> and feeling so sick to my stomach I wasn't sure if I was going to throw up and that was partly at least due to the fact that I was so emotionally like engaged in this film and so appalled by it at the same time that, and then all the, the butter and the popcorn it was, it was just it's a just... bad scene uh, so yeah I would um, yeah that's one that, that I, I definitely recommend if you're looking for something that will scare the pants off you uh, but you know I, I do it gingerly
1: yeah, it, it 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 starts out like you say, like an aliens pastiche, and then winds up uh, going into Hellraiser territory. And uh, I, I think I think in general people didn't really expect it. I was not that big a fan of it at the time. I feel like it's a film that has a strong enough following that I should revisit it, especially with that cast, such a great yeah, cast. Seriously, um, <laughs> I, 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 for me, the, the horror effects, the horror, not the effects, but the the horror. Part of the story didn't really work for me on some level. Maybe because it just reminded me of too many other things. But uh, it isn't original. I will say that <laughs>
2: much. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know. But it, but it, you're right. It is sold with gusto, and uh, you know things things really do go to hell to in a handbasket in a pretty memorable way. And uh, on, on that basis alone, I feel like it's something that I, I should return to at some point. You know if. If it happens to pop up on Netflix or something, I'm not going to go out of my way, but it might, <laughs> might might turn up in some way. Fair it, enough. It's funny that you mentioned that the, the fact that the drive opens a portal and stuff, because I did make the mistake of watching uh, that was the Cloverfield experiment or whatever. The, oh the, yeah, the, the one that's that went straight to Netflix. It looks yeah. like it was meant to go to theaters, and somebody um, made the right decision. About that's it on pretty much instead. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, not as good as the other entries in that series, but it is a you know they have a special warp drive on a on a satellite that or not a warp drive, but like a uh, you know, an ion generator or whatever the heck it is that that you know when they get it up and running opens up a portal to another parallel dimension. you know, and, and that sort of that brought me back to Event yeah. Horizon in a way. And, um, and, For sure. And that wasn't, you know, that was certainly on a lower level than Event Horizon. So that maybe that'll elevate Event Horizon <laughs> in my eyes when I finally see it again. But uh, you know, I remember. I mean, I remember you know Jolie Richardson and, and Sam Neill being particularly good. Um, so I, I really have to go back, uh, go back. So I will, I will take a recommendation
2: to, to give that another chance. All right, well, very good. I, uh, yeah, we can talk again when you. I hope you don't uh, hit me, beat me around the head and face when you have <laughs> finally seen it again. Um, another film that really did damage to me when I saw it in the cinema was the Blair Witch Project. Now I've never been a big camp. Person. I don't. I like cottages. I like going out to the woods, but I don't necessarily want to camp out there. But if I if I had been, this movie would have ended that because <laughs> the kind of terror that it instilled in me. I remember again eating popcorn and then stopping eating while I was watching it because I wanted to listen. Like the sound design was so important to listen. I, I didn't want the crunching to to you know. I didn't want to miss anything, I, and that doesn't happen very often in a cinema. In uh, this film, I mean, a lot of people have talked about this. I don't think we need to go into it too much. But no, it, it was it, it did change the way I, I yeah I don't think I could ever really be go camping again thanks to the Blair Witch Project uh, and uh, yeah and, and that final image uh, still stays with me uh, and it is it is remarkable how well that film was made given how small a budget it was and how successful it was of course it's never really been been uh, replicated that kind of thing even though the found footage genre has lived on I think. Paranormal Activity is probably the best example of of a film done that way since, and I, that was a film I quite liked. It's in a fact. very low uh, definition of the word best. Yes, but, uh. yeah, it's not, it's not. <laughs> it, that's not saying much, but uh, yeah, that was a film. I remember walking out of the cinema, out of the Blair Witch Project, and immediately thinking oh man, I have got to see something else right now to cleanse the imagery (laughs) from my head. So I think I walked right into um, The Thomas Crown Affair, the remake, which was playing in the same cinema. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so that was one that that changed me. Uh, But now you recommended another film that we should watch from the late 90s as well called Audition. This is one I'd never seen before. uh, Directed by Takeshi Miike, And, uh, well, why don't you talk about this one, Stephen, this was your pick. And, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, an interesting one.
1: It's, it's a pretty unnerving film and, and, uh, it, it works its magic, uh, through completely catching you off guard, by like kind of at some point in the film, you think you're watching one kind of movie and then it just pulls a real big switcheroo on you. And, um. You know, we we start off with a a middle-aged man, Uh, you know, he's, I I, I guess he's widowed, he's got a sort of late teen, teenage son, uh, I guess in his late teens, and, uh, you know, he's a successful businessman, and he's feeling kind of lonely, and a a friend of his has the brilliant idea of, well, you know, like his friend who happens to be a movie producer says, well, why don't we, why don't we actually audition for a new, uh, for a new wife for you? And (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he actually goes for this fairly cockamamie scheme and uh and so uh they they begin uh going through uh actresses and you know and and the audition process is kind of treated as kind of jokily. it's 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 almost played for laughs as you see different women who the lengths they'll go to to get a part uh you know it's it's not taken to that extreme if if your mind is going there but but uh you know the whole audition process and and so on is, is obviously played up almost comedically. Uh, and uh, and our businessman character he uh, sort of zeroes in on, on one young woman who you know has a kind of essay about herself uh, that expresses a certain amount of melancholy. Um, you know she talks about you know being wanting to be a ballet dancer until some sort of unnamed injury kind of ruined her hips and uh and she wasn't able to fulfill her dream of dancing and life is just one you know long struggle from one day to the next or whatever and and you know he meets her and she's very um you know she she has keeps her eyes downcast and and you know is very kind of
2: meek and and, and one of the other characters describes her as obedient yes. and as saying that there's no way someone like that wouldn't have a boyfriend i mean this is a film which Uh, You know, at one side, I was like, oh, this is brutally misogynist. And then the other side, I was like, oh, this is a dark satire of men's fear of women. Like, I wondered whether it was actually uh, it was actually self-aware enough to be about that, like being really, really about that and its core. And I'm not I'm really sort of on the fence as to whether (laughs) or not it's it's self-aware enough or is it actually just like a really unpleasant movie for for political reasons? Well, Mieke is
1: is a pretty aware guy. So I I think that it. Does have that awareness, um, but he also, he also likes to push boundaries and, and mm-hmm. get under people's skin, uh, literally, in the case of this film, because guess what? She's
2: not all she's cracked up to be. No, there are some, it starts, like, you're, you, all the setup is very sort of, like, pleasant and almost uh, jokey and jovial. There's almost a romantic comedy vibe to it with the music and, uh, and the characters. It's all very light, and then there's a scene where she's waiting by the phone. In her very spare apartment, waiting for the callback from the audition, and she's just sitting there, and there is a a, a sack next to her, an unmoving sack that suddenly moves <laughs> when the phone rings, and it's like, Whoa, wow, yeah. yeah,
1: that's that's a pretty famous moment from the film, and, and um, you know, we we, we see that, uh, you know, eventually we see the, the real story of this woman's past, and and uh, you know, her. Her desire for vengeance against mm-hmm. those who
2: have wronged her, and and yeah, it's uh, like abuse by by men has caused her to be the way she is. So I think that's the biggest argument for it to being about self aware about okay, this is this is about you know men not respecting women.
1: Yeah, and I you know I certainly think that Mieke is is kind of taking the the. Mickey, Mickey out of, sorry, that, that pun did not land,
2: um, out of these kind of salary
1: men, um, you know, mm-hmm. who get lonely and, and, and have these kind of very warped, uh, views of, 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 uh, of women in, in society, uh, but basically formed by the society in which they live. And, and, you know, I think the satire element is strong, even when he's doing hor- horrific things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his his film career is very uneven. Um, you know, some, there were some years where he's making like up three or four films a year. He just has this knack of of cranking out these films. Which and audition is one of the more sort of put you know better put together, more coherent stories that he's, he's told. Uh, I, I've tried to watch a few others, like Dead or Alive and so on. Ichi the Killer is probably one of the other sort of highlight of his career. Um, uh, but 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 this film it might be his, uh, his kind of psycho masterpiece, as it were, uh, and it certainly has things
2: in it that once seen cannot be unseen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I uh, I absolutely agree, and I I mean I, I was I was glad to see it, and his his work has, has largely eluded me, but I'm I'm glad I, I saw one that you recommended, uh, and this is an interesting one. I I don't know that I can rem- I can recommend it, but then so many people struggle with horror, and I guess I am one of them to some degree. I mean, there's there the you know I guess um, some of the. The reasons that the, the ways in which horror films are getting under your skin are ways in which I find kind of unpleasant. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I have really enjoyed horror movies in the past. In fact, I would say that a couple of years ago, my favorite movie of the year could be described as a horror, which was Green Room. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it goes over into thriller territory, probably more so. But I I really admire uh, a story that can raise the suspense in such a way that you feel like every nerve in your body is just like tense. And, uh, yeah. And that is something that, uh, that I, I, if, if a film can do that, then I am on board. Uh, and so, so yeah, it really, I guess it depends on the, on, on the storyteller.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess the appeal of horror is that of course it, it gives you some sort of, sort of tension and release, I mean, you know, it cranks it up and then kind of, lets you off the hook. It's it's the same as riding a roller coaster, I suppose, except it lasts for, you know, 90 minutes, two hours. It's, you know, it has you in its grasp a lot longer than a 10-minute roller coaster ride. But uh, there is that sense that, uh, you know, it's like as bad as your life is, at least I'm not being chased through the woods by some guy with a machete and a hockey mask. um, (laughs) You know, I mean, my love of horror films, I'm not a big fan of franchises. I was never that big on... the, The Freddy, The Nightmare... On Elm Street films, the first one was very effective when it was fresh and new, and it's—they're the, always the law of diminishing returns. I, you know, some of the later entries in the franchise have their moments, and so on. And, and the Friday the Thirteenth series—I don't know that I ever liked any of it. Um, I watched—you know I went back and rewatched the first one, and it—it—it it, it just seemed kind of amateurish to me. <laughs> and and you know how it managed to spawn—you know—like a dozen sequels or whatever. It's—it's it's kind of beyond me. I—you I, know—just I guess all you need is good iconography. And and you're sold, but but you know then there's things creations that are very similar, like Candyman, which you know very similar to you know Freddy Krueger and and Jason Voorhees and so on. But um, you know thankfully there haven't been a string of those films. I know there are it, there's a sequel there's a sequel or two, but uh, that first one is very effective, and great use of of sort of urban folklore and 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 its kind of dank urban settings. Um, that make that one work because it's grounded in a little bit of reality to some degree, but but then other you know other films really become incredulous and and you know the, the, there has to be that kind of grounding in believability to make it really effective and I find that that's why a lot of these franchises are kind of dying out and. Uh, I
2: think insidious is probably the one of the last ones. The conjuring, I guess we've had a few. yeah, the first the first one of the conjuring was pretty good. I enjoyed that, but I haven't yeah, I haven't made a point of going to see the sequels slash offshoots, the Annabelle, the doll movie, or yeah, no, yeah, those aren't great <laughs> <laughs> but but but
1: you know there are some real some real highlights uh, as, as in any genre, um there are always those those handful of films that kind of supersede the the films that either influence them or or Tried to kind of make hay on their reputation. I mean, you mentioned Blair Witch, and of course, I think now we view that film through the lens of the many imitators and, and terrible sequels and remakes that that fall in its wake. But but the original was was so effective.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. It and, is unfortunate. It's easy to those, forget that those substandard uh, remakes and yeah. and sequels. I
1: mean, I'm glad I saw it. I saw it at a 10 a.m. press screening, which is on an empty stomach, which is maybe not ideal because, uh, you know, with all the shaky cam and everything, I, I came out of that feeling like I'd been tossed in a tumble dryer for for an hour and a half. But it, you know, it's certainly it's certainly I couldn't deny the effectiveness of the film, and uh, and it's 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 sad that that found footage thing became a. Uh, an overused device in so many films that came afterwards it just became so easy to do and and even even now I'm flicking through the horror section on Netflix and just seeing so many (laughs) imitators you know except now they have digital cameras and they can make it look really good it's like well that's not really the point but you know if you try to make it look crappy I guess it's uh it's too much like Blair Witch Project so somehow they just they just struck gold with the concept at that time and and uh at least we can remember that particular film and try and forget the things that came after it.
2: And that's been... Lends me your ears. Our look at scary movies, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun for us. I hope we turned you on to a few scary titles you may not have heard of, and uh, I hope you enjoyed listening. Um, you can find us on uh, Facebook and on Twitter at Lends me your ears. And Steve and I both have Twitter accounts. Mine is uh, flaw in the iris, named after my blog, and uh, Steven's is. Mine is ns underscore. S-C-O-O-K-E. We also have a Patreon account. If you felt like you would like to... you know send us a few shekels we would have very much appreciate it to help uh, cover our costs uh and uh, i wanted to say or we wanted to say thank you very much to ckdu 88.1 fm for the uh, use of the production of facilities in order to record our show and also airing it uh, every second tuesday at 5:30 in the afternoon also many thanks to village sound uh, for their production and for putting this all together Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network, all music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.